It gives me great pleasure to introduce Urban Reichhold from GPPI in Berlin. And um, Urban has just finished a study for the British government's DFID, Department of International Development, um, a desktop review on what works in protecting civilians. And he's going to talk a bit about that, but also about monitoring the impact of, of um, civilian protection. Urban comes with fantastic practical experience with the ICRC, so he's worked with the ICRC for many years in Nepal, Côte d'Ivoire, Afghanistan, and DRC most recently, and also with some spells from OCHA, uh, with OCHA and the EU. So we're very lucky to have you here with us on your whistle-stop tour through England, um, and also to have someone who not only has thought about this theoretically and academically, but who has done it practically um, at operational level. So, Urban, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, just to add a few words so to present myself, um, I'm working with the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin, which is a small think tank, and I joined the GPPI uh, last year, about a year ago. And before that, I've been working mostly uh, with the International Committee of the Red Cross, a little bit with uh, OCHA and with the European Commission, a bit everywhere. And I started off in Nepal, Afghanistan, Cote d'Ivoire, and my last missions were in Colombia and in DRC. Now for the Global Public Policy Institute, as Hugo just said, um, I started working on a study commissioned by, by DFID on, I would say, impact measurement and protection. And I would like to um, um, present you uh, and discuss with you some of our findings we made. Uh, we just presented this uh, study last week at uh, the different office in, in London. Now, to start with, um, a few words on the background of this study. As you probably know, during the 1990s, uh, development organizations and humanitarian actors started introducing so-called result-based management to show or to measure the effects of their work. And this is sometimes called the accountability revolution, although some people would question whether this was really a revolution. Now, what is important is that initially this accountability revolution was limited to humanitarian assistance, so the delivery of relief supplies, medicines, water, etc. And it took quite some time until this revolution spilled over into protection, a couple of years. And actually the first um, guidebook on protection which uh, specifically talks about uh, monitoring, and e monitoring and evaluation challenges in protection came out in 2005. It was published by Alna and ODI, written by Fudo and Andrew Bonnery from Austin. Andrew yeah. So this was in 2005. And since then, many humanitarian agencies developed their own guidance and uh, I think we've become much better in terms of measuring the impact of protection work. But there's a general agreement that measuring impact still remains a big challenge. And this is why, against this background, um, DIFID asked us to do this scoping study, which was a small study. Um, we only had uh, 55 days, three people work working on the project. And um, we reviewed some 170 documents I would say roughly um, one third was uh, academic literature, arti research articles, monographs on protection and impact and protection. One third uh, were evaluation reports, and another third how-to documents, policy guidance, operational guidance, etc. So this is what we're going to talk. I would like to present you, as I said, a few findings of this study. Um, these are the main questions I would like to address, and we, ha we have about 40 minutes, no? 
Um, what is humanitarian protection and human rights protection? As you probably know, there's some, some confusion as to what it means and what is the difference between humanitarian and human rights protection and our protection, military protection. What are main protection trends? How is success defined for different protection projects or approaches? And how is success being measured? Um, I would like to start with the diagram, <coughs> the global protection architecture. So as you know, there are many actors who try to protect civilians from violence and harm in situations of armed violence and natural disaster. I would say the primary responsibility to protect, protect civilians rests with national authorities, the police, the army, um, uh, judicial institutions. <coughs> now if national authorities are unwilling or unable to protect civilians under their jurisdiction, international actors will have a role to step in uh, peacekeeping missions, regional organizations. At least this is at the heart of the, the so-called R2P, the responsibility to protect norm. Non-state authorities, they're also important protection actors, although it is disputed whether they have a legal obligation to protect civilians since they're not parties to international conventions such as uh, the Geneva Conventions. I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to go into detail. I know there's many lawyers in the room. Um, I just want to say that According to some actors, such as the ICRC, uh, non-state authorities do have an obligation to respect certain humanitarian principles, such as uh, the need to distinguish between uh, combatants and civilians, under customary international law. I should also say that some non-state actors, such as um, the Free Syrian Army, uh, pledge to support uh, to respect IHL. And um, I think we had a talk a few weeks ago by um, Elizabeth from Geneva Court, and so you know that many um, non-state armed groups, they signed on to specific deeds, for instance, on the ban, uh, to, to ban landmines. Other actors that are part of this global protection architecture, diplomatic representations, donors, international justice institutions, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, other ad hoc uh, and mixed tribunals. And there, now we're coming to the topic, this is our research focus, and humanitarian organizations and human rights organizations. Now, these two protection actors, they have one thing in common. They cannot physically protect civilians. What they do, what they try to do, is to convince others, primary duty bearers, state and non-state authorities, to protect civilians. They do, th they do this through various forms of uh, private and public advocacy. Um, Humanitarian organizations do many other activities beyond advocacy, and we will get back to that in a second. Now what I would like to do is to talk a little bit about main trends. How has this architecture changed, let's say, during the last 10 or 20 years? And first of all, we have a multiplication of protection actions. Uh, as you know, there are more and more UN peacekeeping missions, or other international military missions that have a specific protection mandate that was given to them by the UN Security Council. Another important change, there are more and more human rights organizations working in, in conflict environments. Uh, you all know the work of Human Rights Watch, uh, which is probably the, most, the best known example, but there are other human, uh, human rights organizations working in conflict, and this was not necessarily the case uh, 20 years ago. You also have more and more humanitarian organizations that have integrated a pr um, protection perspective into their mission statements. So more and more actors. 
Um, another cha important change is a, a shift in focus from primary duty bearers, states and non-state authorities, to affected communities. So humanitarian organizations, what they do, um, they try to support communities to deal with specific protection risks. And this is also a, a major change, and we'll come back to that later on in the presentation. Um, so multiplication of actors, if we're still talking about trends, shift from duty bearers, bearers to affected communities, and uh, lastly, the broadening of, a, of the context, contextual scope. In the past, the protection problems were believed to arise only in situations of armed conflict warfare. Now today there's a, a, an agreement or a growing acknowledge, acknowledgement that uh, protection concerns also arise in natural disaster settings. A few words on evaluation trends. Um, you probably know the AWNAP, um, Active Learning Network, and Accountability and Performance. Thank you. You'll check that. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. AWNAP maintains a database, the Evaluative Reports Database, which is, I think, the biggest database, uh, which includes uh, evaluation, lessons learned papers, program reviews in the humanitarian sector. Um, now what you see, they have a total of 1,100 uh, 1, documents and what you see here are um, documents included in this database that are related to protection. When we start from 1992 until 2012, there's about 170. Now what is interesting, what I found interesting is to see that the number of evaluations or evaluated reports peaked in 2000 with 19 works published and then it decreased. I actually expected it to become larger at the end, but this is not the case, so there seems to be a declining interest somehow in at least in evaluations that are related to protection. In terms of uh, thematic focus, there's also an interesting shift. I would say until two, 2005, most of the evaluations, or a large share of them, they focus on IDPs, refugees, asylum. And many interviewers we've, we've spoken to, I didn't say that we, we reviewed 170 documents, but we also interviewed 40 protection experts. Now many said that the issue of um, asylum and refugees pushed to the margin. Um, and today the focus is more on uh, gender-based violence, child protection, protection of natural disasters, protection mainstreaming. Um, I would like to conclude the discussion on trends with a few <laughs> two charts on, on financial trends. Now what you see here is um, Protection funding between 2000 and 2012 in million US dollars. But this data only includes funding in, uh, in countries where you do have a, a common appeal or flash appeal. Now, it increased from 25 million in 2000 to the peak was, I think, 250 million in 2010. What is interesting, if you compare it with total humanitarian funding uh, in billion US dollars, um, you can see that the evolution is roughly the same, but here we talk about billions, so it increased, total funding increased from 1 billion to uh, a bit about 7 billion. Um, why I'm showing this, just to, to remind you that we are talking about very little money, so the large money still goes into food project, medical aid, etc. Protection only represents between 2.5 and 3.5 of overall funding.
This data comes from um, the financial tracking services, uh, which is a OCHA service. Questions regarding the trends or regarding the protection architecture? Can I add one thing? Which yes. Is, in terms of the evaluations, it may be there are less evaluations. It may be there are less going publicly into our map because of the nature of the material. Absolutely, you're right. So many organisations will not publish data because of confidentiality issues. The ICRC is a case in point. Um, but still, it doesn't explain as why it is decreasing. But you're right. Many. That's a, another constraint. Many organizations will not publish their, their evaluations. And the problem is that if a donor, nowadays, if a donor commissions a, an evaluation, they will always post it on their website, which is a problem for many humanitarian organizations in terms of neutrality. I have a question about the global uh, protection architecture. You have civilians at the core. And then affected communities. Uh, what, what difference do you make? Do you do you mean that some civilians they, they, are just not affected? Okay, no, thank you for bringing me back. Um, actually, first of all, I should say that our study was limited to protection of civilians, the DFID study, but it should actually say civilians and prisoners. They are also protected. So part of uh, I mean, what humanitarian organizations do is is visiting uh, security detainees or prisoners of war. So this is the first thing. And then I included this affected communities to show that communities are seen to have, a, or many humanitarian organizations we spoke to say that they're no longer just talking to states and non-state authorities. They try to reinforce the capacities of communities to deal with protection. So they're one protection actor, which is kind of between civilians, affected civilians, and state and non-state authorities. Other questions? Good, so defining protection. We have to talk a little bit about uh, definition, but I will try to do this as quickly as possible. Um, during the 1990s, between 1996 and 2001, the ICRC in Geneva convened a, a, a number of workshops, and I think the objective, I guess you were there, Hugo, the objective was to define professional standards for protection. Uh, most relevant actors were present, the UN agencies, including the OHCHR, uh, and most humanitarian NGOs and the ICRC, the Red Cross movement, uh, obviously. Now, these, these, uh, the participants of these workshops, they agreed to the following definition, which was later adopted by the IASC, the Interagency Standing Commit uh, Committee of the UN, but it is now the official UN definition. And it says, protection refers to all activities aimed at obtaining full respect for the rights of the individual in accordance with the letter and spirit of relevant bodies of law. And relevant bodies of law include human rights law, international humanitarian law, and refugee law. Now this is where many problems start, where confusion comes from. So this definition is considered both too broad and too na narrow. It is too broad because any humanitarian activity can be linked to human rights law. For instance, if you distribute few food um, to civilians in situations of natural disaster and armed conflict, you are helping them to uh, enjoy the right to adequate food, which is enshrined in international human rights law. And this is actually the reason why some organizations, such as the UNHCR, um, they label almost everything they do as protection. Now, the definition is at the same time too narrow because uh, humanitarian actors implement 
a number of non-legal activities which do not fall under this definition. Um, let me give you one example, for instance, mine action. As you may know, mine action is one thematic area of the global protection cluster, I think there are about 13 thematic areas. Now, mine action can include activities to convince uh, state, states to sign on to the Ottawa Treaty on the on landmines, which is a legal activity then. But it also includes other activities such as mine risk awareness to help communities to deal, and then we're again talking about communities, to help communities to deal with the risks emanating from unexploded ordnance, which is not a legal activity as such. So this is a source of confusion, I would say not so much in headquarters, but at the field level. And in order to bring clarity into the debate, many organizations and donors have uh, developed what I would call activity-based definitions. So normally, the notion of protection refers to activities aimed at protecting civilians from violence and other patterns of harm, such as sexual exploitation, discrimination, separation of family links. And it also includes efforts to facilitate access to specialized care and reparation for victims of past violence and harm. Now, what we try to do in this different study, we try to regroup or to group the different, all the different protection activities. And we came up with the following division or typology. And we have developed three approaches. The first one is remedial action, the second one adaptation, and the third one prevention. Remedial action refers to remedy, providing remedy to, vic to individual victims of harm. Um, medical assistance to rape victims, for instance, psychosocial counsel counseling services to uh, civilians traumatized by violence, family reunifications, tracing activities, and also legal support to victims who seek re reparation. As you know, in, in many contexts, a main protection concern for civilians is access to land titles, and you have a number of organizations such as, uh, for instance, the NRC, the Norwegian Refugee Council, which provides legal aid to civilians seeking, uh, for instance, uh, to receive land titles. Adaptation is about reducing risk exposure. And this ex includes um, so-called protection mainstreaming activities. Um, the classical example of protection mainstreaming are firewood distributions inside IDP camps to ensure that uh, women, women don't have to um, collect firewood in surrounding areas where the risk of rape may be particularly high. Um, so this is about good programming. It's not about promoting the law. Another example is the installation of adequate lightning inside IDP camps to ensure that um, women, or to reduce the risk of rape at nighttime. Community-based protection, uh, we mentioned mind risk awareness, this was one example. As I said, this is important because more and more humanitarian actors um, seek to strengthen communities or help them to deal with protection risks. So let me give you one other example from my own experience. Uh, when I was working with the ICRC in Colombia, um, we observed that indigenous communities had, a, had a, a coping mechanism to regroup in specific houses when fighting erupted in surrounding areas. Now what the ICRC did, well I should say that they regrouped in community houses which were built of um, traditional material, wooden planks, or wooden panels, which didn't provide uh, uh, good protection. So what the ICRC did 
they reinforced these community houses, they built brick walls uh, to provide greater protection against stray bullets and other explosive weapons. Now this is another example of, a, of an activity which is not of a legal nature, it's more about engineering I would say. Um, let's move on, prevention, promoting respect for and compliance with international humanitarian law, international human rights law. Um, now this is about convincing uh, NATO forces in Afghanistan to stop their reliance or to reduce their reliance on aerial bombardments. It's about convincing non-state armed groups to not recruit child soldiers. And uh, this is done through public and private advocacy. Prevention also includes legal training with police, security forces, armed groups, militias. I should say that um, this is becoming more and more complicated in certain contexts. Um, as you know, you have counter-terrorism legislations uh, in many donor countries, so it's not so easy nowadays to carry out the legal training with an armed group that is listed as a terrorist organization, such as the Taliban or Al-Shabaab. Um, technical support for the implementation of IHL, uh, for, the, for the incorporation of IHL into national law, this also falls under this third approach. Now, why, why is this distinction important? I think, first of all, the scale of ambition behind each approach varies considerably. So what you're trying to do here, remedial action is, is essentially responsive. You're trying to help victims to cope with the after effects of war. Adaptation is about, as we said, helping people to live with risks. And only the third approach is about addressing the deeper causes of violence against civilians. Uh, rooted in unharm and, and unlegal, unlawful, and ha harmful behavior. So this is important. Secondly, I would say that success is defined differently for each approach. And you can be very effective in terms of providing remedial action, helping communities to deal with risk, but at the same time you can fail to address the deeper causes of violence against civilians. I think this is important because sometimes you will hear critics say we have failed to protect civilians, but in most cases um, references then made to the third approach, not so much to the first two ones. And I also think this a third reason why this uh, distinction is important, because um, the challenges, and then we're coming to our main topic, the challenges in terms of measuring impact are very different for each approach. But before we talk about measurement challenges, I would like to conclude this discussion and, and, and illustrate the, the links and the distinction at the same time between assistance and protection. Uh, as you know, normally we say that humanitarian action, action has two, two dimensions, assistance and protection. Assistance is about ensuring minimal, minimal material conditions that are essential for the survival of the civilian population. It's about water, sanitation, healthcare, nutrition, etc., uh, food security and emergency shelter. Protection is about ensuring the physical safety of the civilian population and in a more broader sense, um, ensuring respect for the for relevant law. Now, classical protection activities are public advocacy, confidential, maintaining a confidential dialogue, for instance, to gain humanitarian access and to talk about specific violations of international humanitarian law, prison visits, legal training, as we, saw, as we, as we said, and legal support for the implementation of IHL. Now, in the middle, we have these other activities, which are somehow in between. Remedial action, as we said before, uh, medical assistance, uh, family tracing services, protection mainstreaming, 
and community-based protection. Before we talk about measurement challenges, do you have any, does this make sense? And do you have any comments regarding this typology? Um, no, no, that's very. You mean arm protection, protecting civilians? Yeah, the more sort of concrete security of the civilians. Um, yes, this is obviously very relevant. But as we said before, when we talked about this protection architecture, our focus is is on humanitarian and human rights protection. So, humanitarian and human rights organizations don't have the means to physically mm. provide physical arm protection. By presence, some, sometimes they would. Yes, you could say that the protective presence, as it's sometimes called, but it's not about it's not about protecting them directly from physical violence. No. Other questions? This is all clear. Good. What are measurement challenges? Now, when you ask people why is it difficult to measure impact in protection, and again we talk about human rights and humanitarian protection, this is the normal answer you will get. People will tell you that. Uh, protection outcomes are less amenable to quantification than outcomes related to humanitarian assistance. So, for instance, if you have a nutrition project, it is relatively easy to uh, measure the, the weight, the body mass index of children prior to treatment, during treatment, and afterwards, and you can say whether you had an impact. Now, this is obviously much more complicated if we talk about <coughs> an advocacy campaign, for instance, to, to ban anti-personnel mines. I'm saying this is the standard answer. This is not to say that it's not correct. But if we're honest, I mean, the same challenges apply to other uh, interventions or programs, for instance, uh, complex development inter interventions to promote rule of law in, in a specific country. You will have the same measurement challenges. So I think we have, to be, we have to be a bit more specific. And what I want to do now is to talk about measurement challenges for each of the three approaches we've discussed before. And I will go through this quickly because this is taking longer than I thought. Um, remedial action. Providing remedy to ind individual victims of harm, uh, of, viol of past violence and harm. Um, you're successful if your activities help to reduce the, or restore, sorry, or at least enhance the dignity and well-being of civilian victims. Now, it is obviously very difficult to quantify individual well-being and uh, dignity. What you have to do normally, you have to, to ask beneficiaries um, whether, whether they benefited, or you have to ask beneficiaries to assess the service you're providing. Let me give you one example, psychosocial counseling. Uh, MSF is one, uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, is one organization providing psychosocial counseling in situations of uh, armed conflict and natural disaster. Now, as a standard practice, MSF asks people after their treatment whether they've been satisfied. Now, uh, I've spoken to one MSF member and he said, the problem is that if they go back, if they go back to the people they have assisted after, say, a couple of, three or four months or after half a year, they noted that even people who said that the service they received was very useful, and they easily relapse into pathological behavior after, uh, afterwards. So what does it mean? It means that 
even if people are satisfied with your service, the impact may actually be quite low in terms of helping individuals to return to a normal life. Let me give you one other example. Uh, as we said before, family tracing and uh, reunifying children with their parents is part of remedial action. Now, you might think that reunifying children with their parents is always a good thing, but it is not that as straightforward. Many times, when you when you when you locate the parents of a of a child, of a boy or a girl, you ask them, "Do you want to return to your parents?" They would say yes. I mean, this is from my own experience. They would say yes. Now you you bring them back to their parents, and then after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, actually they are unhappy because they want to return to their tutors because they've grown attached to them. Sometimes they, they don't even know their parents. They've been growing up with with tutors for years. So what you have to do, you really have to go back to beneficiaries, in this case children, after a couple of months, after a year or so. And this is a problem because uh, in, in, in most contexts you don't have this opportunity. As you know, humanitarian projects are short, 12 months, 18 months. So we have to broaden the time frame uh, if we want to measure impact. Um, reducing risk exposure. If successful, different risk mitigating measures reduce the, the incidence of violence and harm among beneficiaries. Let's go back to the example we mentioned before, uh, distribution of firewood inside IDP camps to ensure that women don't have to go outside where the risk of rape is greater. Now, what is the problem here? Uh, sexual violence uh, in developing contexts in, in, uh, in the UK is a sensitive issue, and it can be difficult to measure the incidence of sexual violence directly. You cannot go to women who receive firewood and ask them so, have you been less exposed to sexual violence? This is not possible. Now, you have to locate or identify proxy measures. And one example are patterns of movement. And this is actually one say, successful example. There are more and more uh, humanitarian organizations who have been very innovative in this regard. And let me give you one example of a WFP project in um, sorry, Kenya. What WFP did, it's a project that started uh, last year, um, they distribute fuel-efficient stoves to women in refugee camps uh, along the border with Somalia. And they don't ask women whether they're less subject or exposed to sexual violence. They ask them whether they've reduced the time they spend outside an IDP, uh, their, their IDP camp. And then they compare this with a group of women that has not received fuel-efficient uh, um, uh, fuel, uh, uh, efficient fuel stoves. So looking at patterns of movement is the one possibility to get around this and to gather uh, data on very sensitive issues. Was this clear, this example? Okay, now we're coming to the third approach, prevention. Promoting respect for and compliance with humanitarian principles and relevant international law. This is about changing policy and changing behavior. Now, changing harmful policies and behavior of primary duty bearers uh, takes years. Uh, in some cases, it takes decades. So there, there you have a real problem. If, if your objective is to, to convince non-state armed groups such as, let's say, the Eastern Congo, the Lowe's Resistance Army, to not use child soldiers, you will not have an impact within a year or so. You need much longer time frames. Um, and even then, you need to be able to, what you need to assess impact, uh, 
you need to have um, longitudinal data on protection trends. And you rarely have this in humanitarian context. Due to various reasons, uh, short programming cycles, uh, high turnover of humanitarian staff. So you, we're often, in most cases, we're lacking data on trends to assess impact of uh, activities aimed at changing behavior uh, and changing harmful policies. Now, a third problem, even if data on trends is available, um, attributing positive change to a particular program can be very difficult. To get back to the example we mentioned before, um, if your objective is to reduce child recruitment in Eastern Congo, and you're working or you're engaging with the Lord's uh, Resistance Army, and at some point you note that child recruitment are going down, it is very difficult to explain whether this was due to your successful advocacy effort, or maybe uh, it was simply due to the successful military campaign uh, carried out by UN forces by the MONUS. Maybe they've been just pushing LRA uh, into a neighboring country, and this is the reason why uh, um, the, the number of child, child recruitment decreases in a specific area. So you always have a, uh, an attribution problem if we're talking about the third approach, prevention. Now, if you agree, I would like to... For me, these are the most difficult challenges to deal with. Um, establishing data on protection or gathering data on protection trends and attribution, uh, attributing, attributing effect of specific interventions. And I would like to go a bit more into detail. Um, let us take a step back. How do humanitarian actors uh, and human rights actors collect information on trends? Normally they have a very um, pragmatic approach. You will try to gather information from as many sources as possible. You will carry out face-to-face -face debriefing with victims and their family members with other direct witnesses, with community representatives. You will review national and international media. Uh, you can use hospital statistics, for instance, if you're looking at uh, rape incidents. You can use uh, visual, visual evidence, satellite imagery, uh, videos, etc. In most cases, you will not find a sampling plan. Humanitarians are very pragmatic about gathering data. So it's not very scientific, you might say. Still, such a pragmatic approach can work in certain contexts. And I would like to talk a little bit about Afghanistan. Um, as you know, in 2006, the conflict in Afghanistan, the current conflict in Afghanistan, started to intensify. And what the UN did, the UNAMA mission, uh, or more specifically the uh, human rights unit within the UNAMA mission in Afghanistan, they started to systematically collect data on civilian deaths. Uh, by uh, conflict-related deaths. And what you see here is death rate between the number of deaths from 2007 to 2012. It steadily increased until two, uh, 2011, and it's for, for the first time it decreased in 2012, I think, by, by 16%. The report just came out a couple of weeks ago. Um, UNAMA went a step further, and they disaggregated data by parties to the conflict. And what you see here is... Um, civilian deaths and injuries linked to um, uh, anti-government elements. Uh, this is the official UN uh, 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 notion for, for, um, for uh, the Taliban and other groups. Now, um, this is the dark red bar. The orange bar 
pro-government forces, international forces, national forces, uh, militia groups, and others, I think, are those that cannot be linked to any specific armed groups, to any party to the conflict, sorry. Um, Unama went even a step further, and they collected data for different types of military operations, and here what you see is civilian deaths and injuries caused by aerial attacks between 2010 and 2012, and death, injuries, and total, figure, uh, total numbers. Now these obviously are linked to, mostly linked to international, or here the civilian deaths and injuries are caused by international forces, because they are the only ones carrying out, until recently at least, carrying out aerial and airstrikes. Afghanistan is an exception. You will not find such detailed data in other contexts. I think what Yunama did in this pragmatic way, and I hadn't mentioned that before, there was no, I mean, how did they collect this data? It was through personal networking, talking to uh, staff members in different field offices, talking to their families, talking to the police, talking to journalists, etc. As I said, gathering as much information as you can in a very pragmatic manner. Now this data proved to be very useful because it uh, instigated debate, um, it received uh, uh, international and national media coverage, even the Taliban referred to this data, and you had some kind of discussion. And um, I should say that if we talk about um, civilian deaths caused by aerostrikes, air, air, and airstrikes, um, they increased since 2007. Um, and you might say that uh, this was useless because it didn't have any impact, but those who collected the data, um, and I think they're right, they say that the overall increase in civilian casualties was much lower than the increase in airstrikes. So it, has a, it had a positive impact. Now there are, there are clear limitations to such kind of data collection. I think it worked in Afghanistan, but it is not suited to collect or to document le less visible protection problems, sexual violence, uh, torture are examples. It is not suitable to establish trends, protection trends in areas where the presence of humanitarian and human rights actors is weak and subject to fluctuations. I will explain what I mean by that. Um, I'm just picking randomly another example, DRC, I've worked there. So in DRC, uh, as you know, DRC is the Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the biggest humanitarian crises, and we know very, very little about trends. You have a serious problem of sexual violence, uh, displaced, forced displacement, and we really, we still don't know. We cannot make any clear, we cannot, we don't have enough information uh, on, on trends over time. Um, so I would say if Afghanistan is a, a good example uh, um, or best practice, DRC is probably uh, a worst practice example. Uh, why? Not only because humanitarian and human rights actors are doing a bad job, it's simply because of, of, of the context. Uh, DRC is as big as Western Europe. You, you don't really know how many people there live. Uh, estimates vary between 60 and 80 million. Uh, it is very difficult to gather data um, in a systematic manner. You don't know what's happening in the provinces. When I was there in 2010, there was a problem because uh, humanitarians left certain areas, so if you look at protection trends then uh, you had less uh, incidents reported, you had a decrease for instance in IDP rates, once they returned to certain areas the data went up. 
So this obviously is not, you cannot use this information to assess impact. What are the solutions? I think in, in countries like DRC, it's necessary to extrapolate from smaller samples of the population. The problem is uh, using uh, surveys, for instance, the problem is that there is very little experience within the humanitarian community uh, in terms of sampling and using survey uh, methods. There are a few exceptions. Uh, NRC, uh, sorry, Oxfam is uh, carrying out con um, what are they called protection surveys, for instance. Um, IRC has been working with uh, mortality surveys, but by and large, there's very little experience. Using more scientific methods are more common in other uh, areas such as humanitarian assistance, but in protection, we're not using such methods. So what we recommended to DFID is to carry out additional research to gather best practices, uh, to look at other related fields such as development, uh, to see whether we can use uh, methods in other areas and apply them to, to the protection sector. I think it would also be relevant to, to see whether some academia or whether we can learn from academia and simplify some of the methods you might be using and use them for protection. So this is one uh, recommendation we made to DFID. Um, any questions so far before I turn to the latest, uh, the last section? No? Um, attribution. We said that attribution, uh, establishing trends is the main problem and the second problem is attributing success. I want to give you another example from Colombia, the so-called Falsos Positivos scandal. In 2002, when the new Uribe government was elected, the Colombian army launched a very large military campaign in an attempt to regain control over areas that have been controlled by guerrilla forces and other non-state armed groups. Now, in that period, Colombia witnessed a stark increase of extrajudicial killings. Um, I should say this information is out there in the public domain. Um, so what happened? Colombian, the army, they arrested people from marginalized groups, uh, urban dwellers or, or peasants, um, dressed them up as guerrilla fighters, shot them, and then presented them as killed, people killed in combat. As you can see, everybody, even the army, has to sh produce results. Uh, 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 the measurements. Now this was a huge problem and you had many, in Colombia at least, you had many national uh, NGOs, human rights organizations, the media, but also international organizations that documented these cases of extrajudicial killings. And this led to a, a, a government investigation in 2009. And as a consequence, 28 military officers were fired, including the the Commander General of the Colombian Army. Now, this example, uh, the case of the Falsus Positivos in Colombia, is, a, I would say, a very rare example of a well-documented, successful protection campaign in the promoting or uh, eliminating and preventing violence against civilians through the promotion of behavioral change. Now, who was responsible for success? Uh, the OHCHR, uh, the Office for the High Commission of Human Rights, the, OH, um, the, the former head of the OHCHR office in Colombia, uh, Christian Salazar Fortman, he wrote an article uh, which came out uh, last year where he claimed success. Um, the OHCHR was working on, obviously on, on, this, on the file. 
on, on the case of uh, extrajudicial killings. But you have the ICRC has a much longer, larger presence in Colombia. You have national human rights organizations that play are very active in, in, in Colombia. There is the U.S. administration. As you know, um, the U.S. is a major donor to, uh, in, in terms of military aid. Uh, and it's, it's reasonable to, to believe that uh, U.S. administration or U.S. officials had an interest uh, in convincing the Colombian army to put an end to this practice. You have political opposition parties, and all this happened one year before the presidential election. And lastly, you have the International Criminal Court. Colombia became a state party to the, the ICC, I think, in 2002. But the Colombian government said that it would not accept the jurisdiction of the court for seven years, if I'm not, yeah, I think it was seven years. Now this period or this deadline expired at the end of 2009. So again, it's, it's reasonable to, to believe that the Colombian government had no interest in a criminal investigation by the ICC prior to an election campaign. So who is responsible for success? I don't think, I cannot give you an answer. I don't think there is a statistical answer or solution to the problem. Maybe some of you who know more about statistics would argue otherwise. But I think we have to be very modest about attribution. All we can do is explain how different actors contributed to success. But we also, I think it's necessary to go one step further. And we should take examples such as the, 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 the case of extrajudicial killings in, in Colombia and try to isolate external factors that contributed to success in this specific case. And I think we can go even one step further and try to isolate or get a better understanding of external factors that enhance or limit the success of different protection interventions across different contexts. And this is actually the second recommendation we made to DFID. And here I'm just providing you with a list of uh, potentially relevant external factors, military dynamics, domestic political dynamics, international political dynamics, for instance, uh, political negotiations to end a conflict. This may end the way uh, um, armed groups, for instance, uh, um, are willing to engage with humanitarian actors, economic factors, overall share of a national budget, uh, overall share of aid in national budgets, UN peacekeeping missions, and uh, as we said before, activities of the International Criminal Court. So in conclusion, I think what we need to do to get a better understanding of what works in protection, specifically if we talk about activities aimed at changing uh, policy and behavior uh, is to get a better, we need to carry out larger research projects. This cannot be done through an evaluation within a couple of weeks, but investigate and try to understand under which circumstances particular interventions can work. Um, I would like to conclude here. I'm sorry, I was a bit too long. Um, maybe with a final remark, I know that this has been a bit technical. Um, it was about uh, impact measurement. Um, I kind of avoided more normative questions. Uh, this was to keep the focus of the debate, but I think normative questions are very relevant. Uh, I don't think it's possible to quantify everything we do. I don't think it's, it's even necessary to put the number on everything we do. I think you had a presentation a few weeks ago, was it last week, or, um, by Mona Saleh from the ICRC, explaining what ICRC does in, uh, in prisons. And I think it's, it's, not, it's not possible to 
it's also very difficult to assess the impact of such activities. But I may give you a, a last example. When I, when I worked with the ICRC in, in 2008 in southern Colombia, uh, sorry, in southern Afghanistan, in, in, I was based in Kandahar, uh, we, what we did is we, did, um, we organized phone calls between family members uh, and detainees in Guantanamo. So families came to our office in Kandahar and we called uh, their, their sons or, uh, in Guantanamo. And this was, these were telephone conferences. Now, for many families, this was the first time in several years that they've been able to speak to their sons. And I don't think it is possible or necessary to, to assess impact. I don't think you, it, is, it doesn't make any sense to ask family members after this phone call whether it enhanced their well-being. Um, I'm simplifying a little bit, but um, I think it's just morally important, something that is, I mean, it's morally important that families can talk to, the, to their sons even if they are retained in Guantanamo. So I want to conclude with that remark. I, I think that normative questions are important, maybe you want to talk about them now. I avoided them because I was already too long and it was, that would have made it much more complicated. Thank you.